0: Americans, and it's got to be said, South Africans, they do very generous introductions, and we're English, so people don't, in England, people don't talk like this about, they don't talk like this about the Queen. Um, so it's pretty amazing, and I'm hearing, the, I've got this sort of dual narrative going on, as Alan is saying these incredibly warm, gracious things, and I look down and discover that a sizable portion of my taco is smearing down here, and I'm just having this talk of thing, I'm now going to preach in what I thought was a pristine shirt, taco smears down here, and meanwhile Alan's saying, it's just wonderful to be, I'm like, oh gosh, so uh, the fusion of both and. Thank you so much. I want to talk tonight about how we reach the post-Christian world. That's what uh, Anne and I have talked about this and, and we, we thought it would be a, a good fit for this evening. And I don't know whether the post-Christian world is a term that you use and I don't even know where you live to what extent it reflects your neighborhood. Some of us would probably feel like that might be not the the right word to describe our community and I, I understand that and I'm, I don't know whether that term is something you use but what I mean by post-Christian to describe the modern west is that our society is to a greater or lesser degree increasingly leaving behind a bunch of Christian convictions while simultaneously holding on to a bunch of other Christian convictions so what our society is doing is it's saying we don't really, as a, as a collectively, a bit, many people do, you do, that's why you're here, but many people in our society, probably now a, a substantial majority of people in our society, no longer believe as they used to in a number of core Christian creedal beliefs like monotheism, belief in one God, or substitutionary atonement, someone dying for the sins of the world, or resurrection, or the incarnation that God becomes flesh, or even in creation. So there might be a whole lot of Christian doctrines that said, no, we don't believe that. That's not where society is now. We don't hold to those Christian beliefs. But we do still hold to a bunch of other Christian beliefs. We still believe in faith and hope and love or charity and humility and compassion and equality. We believe in those things. In fact, we, we think that Christians might not believe in those things enough. We really believe in those Christian beliefs, all of which come from the same root as monotheism, crucifixion, resurrection, and so on. And so what our culture is doing is moving beyond some Christian beliefs while continuing to champion others at the same time. And that's what I mean when I talk about post-Christian. I don't mean people have left everything behind. We're not post-Christian. It's all gone. But actually what's happening is we're very much post-Christian. If I can put the accent on the other word. That is that a society like ours is very different from a society that is, say, post-Islamic or post-Hindu, or post-Confucian, or post-Communist. They, they think very differently in cultures like that than they do in a post-Christian context like the one that I am. I live in Western Europe, so we're very much there. And depending on where you're from in the US, that might well reflect exactly what it's like to live in you. If you're in San Francisco, you say, yeah, that's what it's like here. If you're in New York, you're in Boston, that's what it's like here. Parts of the U.S., you'd say, no, nah, not quite, but we read about it, um, and we know that it's becoming more of a thing for our young people or online or whatever. So that's what I mean by a post-Christian. Now, ultimately, the world we're in is ultimately pre-Christian. That's the good news, right? In that the, the scriptures teach so that the last enemy to be destroyed is death, and then comes the end when the Son is going to hand over the kingdom to God the Father, that God may be all in all. Right? That's where history's going. So the world in that sense is pre-Christian. So I don't use the word post-Christian to mean, well, we've all you know, Christianity lasted for a while and then it disappeared, and we're here with That's not my tone, that's not my personality, it's not my belief. But I do think it's worth us thinking through how do you reach a society that has increasingly left behind some of the core commitments of Christianity while continuing to hold on to a bunch of the others, particularly on it on sort of moral and Um, social ethical issues, there might be quite a lot of Christianity in the way people think, even as they are opposing Christianity in other areas. And so many of you will probably know what I mean if I talk about a post-Christian world. You'd be aware that church attendance has dropped in the last 20 years. In your country, in mine, it's been dropping for 80 years. So I'm here with good news. Like, the church survives. It's fine. It's okay. Jesus is still Lord, right? He's still alive. But in America, I think what's happened in your country is that what's taken 80 years in mine has happened in about eight in yours. And that is quite, can throw a lot of us And the people, if we're pastors, as many of us are, the people that we lead and serve. It can be quite confusing and distressing to walk through. It's just happened quicker here for various reasons. And you know what it's like to live in a society where, to some degree, things that were normal, ordinary Christian beliefs and practices a generation ago are now regarded as backward or problematic or evil. And you've lived through that, even if most people you know don't think that you're aware that there's a bunch of people in your nation who do, and they have a lot of influence, and you probably, you and your families, interact with them in all sorts of ways. And during our conference this week, we have been, I mean, obviously, some of you have been at the conference, some haven't, but during the conference this week, we've been looking a little bit about how and why that's happened, and I'm not going to rehash all of it, but I did want to summarize this. I wanted to summarize it by saying, one of the things we've talked about is that it is the result of, um, our current culture is the product of the interaction of, Christianity being taken as normal and everyone just assumes certain Christian values colliding with romanticism and a particular way of thinking about the self and identity and those two things interact with each other and shaping the kind of culture that we have today. So I'm just going to put up some this is a fun, fun little story from your founding year 1776, uh, is, I just like this story. So this is a picture of uh, the, a draft of the Declaration of Independence. Sorry for those of you who saw this this morning. You know the punchline here. But this is a draft of the Declaration of Independence that Thomas Jefferson sent to Ben Franklin uh, a couple of weeks before they all signed it. And uh, Or they, they actually didn't all sign it, but you know, John Hancock signed it. Um, and no space for anyone else, as we know. And, um, and so Thomas Jefferson sent this draft. And he said, you know, when in the course of human events, yada, 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 we hold these truths to be, and you all know what word comes next, but that's not what Jefferson wrote. What Jefferson wrote was, and you can see it crossed out there, we hold these truths to be sacred and undeniable, that all men are created equal and are endowed with it by their creator with certain inalienable rights and so on. And Benjamin Franklin crossed out sacred and undeniable and replaced it with self-evident. Jefferson was saying, We hold these truths sacred. They're religious truths that we have inherited, really, from Christianity, and we continue to believe them, even though Jefferson's not really a Bible-believing Christian. But Franklin goes, No, 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 they're not sacred truths. They're self-evident truths. And I use that as a picture of what's happened in the West as a whole, which is that things that come from Christianity, like a high emphasis on love as the ultimate virtue, that's not what most societies believe most societies will put lots of things honor and prestige or power all sorts of things might be higher than love in the hierarchy courage might be higher justice might be higher but in christianity love is all you need so even people who don't like god and are anti-christian will still sing love is all you need and think that it's a secular a self-evident belief but it isn't it's a christian one and same with true of humility pity compassion many many others um And so that's happening, and then effectively our society is, and in the last 250 years has done that, has said, hey, here are things that Christianity's given us, but we now regard them as self-evident, because everyone we know believes them, because they're so thoroughly Christianized, no one thinks to ask where it comes from. Christianity has been a victim of its own success, because it has baked moral norms so deeply into the dough of Western society that a lot of people in that society don't know where they come from. But at the same time as that's happening, you have a, a different kind of um, mo- you know, moral and intellectual influence taking place. And in the same year, so I, I've just written a book about 1776. I'm a nerd for this period now. So while this is going on, another series of writers on my side of the Atlantic are writing quite differently uh, about, and they're also shaped by Christianity too, but they are speaking actually more about the inner life of the person and the true nature of where inspiration uh, and and hope comes from that it. Really, comes is an internal to a person? And they start saying things like these. You may know these names. I don't know how well you how, well, how much how many German 18th century writers you read. Probably not a lot, I wouldn't think. But here are some a few examples of some of the great intellects of the period. All our actions should be self-determined, said Johann Gottfried Hoder. In co- in accordance with our innermost character, we must be true to ourselves. Now you now say that's a very obvious statement. That statement is the plot of every Disney movie. Yeah, it is, isn't it? We must be, that's what you do, that's the story, that's, that's what some of us are quite young in this room. You've probably heard that phrase, you must be true to yourselves, right? That goes back to a, a German philosopher. Around the same time as your declaration was being edited, people in Europe, rom- early romantic thinkers, they're not, romanticism doesn't quite exist yet, but they're beginning to express this idea that what really counts artistically And what's great about the human spirit is when we look into ourselves and then project that out into the world. Johann Wolfgang von Goethe, great name, 1774, made this comment in this best-selling novel he wrote called The Sorrows of Young Werther. And he he just said, one of the things he said, I return into myself and I find a world. I'm just so deeply fascinating i make no apology this is me oh oh, oh. you can hear it coming through some of these texts right jean jacques rousseau in his in 1776 like this is now three or four months this is while can i say this here this is while the american army is running away from the british um (laughs) taking place so october 1776 that, that is basically 1776 is a great declaration and then a lot of running away unfortunately followed by a glorious victory, I have to admit that, but in in this period of the year it's a lot of running away, but meanwhile in France, Jean-Jacques Rousseau is walking around Paris writing these essays, and one of the lines, he says, one follows one's heart, and everything is done. Now, you recognize those kind of sentiments because they're so normal now in our society, that is, as I say, that is the, you can hear the greatest showman singing in the background as you hear those kind of comments but that was very new and what's happened in the west in summary is you have these christian moral norms that have been baked into the society and people have forgotten what they are and now think they're self-evident and we can move beyond them Colliding with these, this sort of what romanticism, which is not, as I say, not yet quite a thing, but it emerges out of this spirit, and within a few years, poetry, music, art, and all of it, all the arts really, have been profoundly shaped by this sort of thinking. And the two of them mingle together, and over the course of the next 200 years, create the kind of culture that you and I live in. That's that's the an outline of the claim I'm making. And actually, romanticism, I, there's a lot of there's a lot of problems with this. But I think the best problem I know is best stated by actually a romantic novelist. Somebody who, a, a woman called Donna Tart. Has anybody ever read The Secret History? Have you ever heard of that? She's a brilliant novelist. She's one of my favorite writers. But she's, this is a great quote from the end of her novel, The Goldfinch, which uh, won all sorts of awards and sold many, hundreds of thousands of copies a few years ago, 2014. And this is one of the things that happens towards the end of a romantic novel. And she, she says it's quite a long quote, but bear with me, because it's a good critique of what happens in a lot in our culture. From William Blake to Lady Gaga, from Russo to Rumi to Tosca to Mr. Rogers, it's a curiously uniform message accepted from high to low. When in doubt, what to do? How do we know what's right for us? Every shrink, every career counselor, every Disney princess knows the answer. Be yourself. Follow your heart. Only here's what I really, really want someone to explain to me. What if one happens to be possessed of a heart that can't be trusted? What if the heart, for its own unfathomable reasons, leads one willfully and in a cloud of unspeakable radiance away from health, domesticity, civic responsibility, and strong social connections, and all the blandly held common virtues, and instead straight towards a beautiful flare of ruin, self-immolation, disaster? If your deepest self is singing and coaxing you straight toward the bonfire, is it better to turn away? I. Think that's one of my favourite paragraphs in modern writing because she is a. She's not a Christian at all. She's a romantic. She she writes novels and she's written a very romantic novel called The Goldfinch. In but at the end of it, she said, "This is the problem with Rousseau and Goethe and Herder and the greatest showman and Disney and all those plots." Is, but how do you know your heart is a good thing to trust? How, what if the heart gets it wrong sometimes? And so what our culture is, you have this very strong Christian moral norms, which have now become self-evident, mingled with a very strong romantic tradition. And the collision creates the sort of culture we're in. And it shapes, for instance, have a look, just go to the next page. Um, two little images to, to show you the kind of the cultural tenor of our our story, right? The one on the left is a more personal, the one on the right is more uh, corporate, but on, on the left, yeah, well, it is on the left, isn't it? On the left, you just have a picture. I, I pinched this from some, some friends of mine in New York, but it's just really good. Basically, the, the sort of the modern person tells a story that basically goes like this. You, the goal in life is for you to, be, is for you to find happiness, The way you find happiness is to look into your heart and find out what your identity is and then project that identity out into the world, which means you need the freedom to do whatever you like and it means that you need to contend for justice, which is for you effectively to be able to express your identity so that you can find happiness, particularly on issues like sex. That's a very important way of doing it. If people oppose you, it might be because they're anti-science and it might be because they're making a claim to power and they need to be resisted and contended with because ultimately, they're inhibiting the progress that the human race is all making towards a better, brighter future. Some version of that story—that's the, that's the post-Christian story. Some of us buy it more than others. Some of us don't buy it at all, but we know that many of our neighbours or colleagues buy it more than others. That's on the, on the left. And then, more corporately, you might have seen this yard sign. Apparently, there's a whole bunch of them round—you know, round near here. I've driven around your country a, a bit in the last few years and have seen lots of these or things very like them. In this house, we believe black lives matter, women's rights are human rights, no human is illegal, science is real, love is love, kindness is everything. Or a modification of that. And there's actually conservative versions of the same thing. In this house, we believe the Second Amendment is all. There's loads of versions of it. right? But that basically, that outline is, well, my comment is, that is a series of statements, right? I know there's political implications behind them. Don't worry. I'm not going to get into that. I've done that kind of thing before in America, and it never goes well for English people. The most I can do is say that your army ran away. That's as much as I'm going to, that's the most political thing I'll say. But if you just, instead of taking the policy things, just think though, at statements, those things are all A, completely true, and B, completely Christian. Of course black lives matter. Of course women's rights are human rights. Of course no human is everyone believes that. I know that behind them is policy stuff that causes more debate. But those statements are Christian up and down, aren't they? They are they've drawn from but most people in in other parts other parts of the world have not historically believed those things. And so when people say those things, they're often saying it against a bunch of Christians, and yet the convictions themselves are have grown out of Christian soil that's not you ask an ancient Greek before the coming of Christ or a Viking in my country before the coming of Christianity do you believe any of those things they wouldn't believe any of them well, apart from maybe love is love because that's the one that means nothing But they, I mean obviously by definition love is love what are you talking about but none of the others they say no kindness is not the highest virtue we're going to rape and pillage this island and going to kill everybody in it who stands in our way and we're going to get honour and glory that's what's important not kindness women's rights and human rights well are they really I mean, women do this and this and this. Men do this and this and this. I mean, that, they wouldn't, black lives matter. We've never met a black person, but if we did, we'd, we'd, we certainly wouldn't regard them as equal as us. We are these people. Do you see that all of these beliefs are, as stated here, are Christian beliefs in origin. And that's, that's just a fascinating dynamic we navigate when we are encountering what I mean by a post-Christian world. We have lots of Christian beliefs baked in, but the big Christian beliefs about Christ about God, the creator of heaven and earth, about his only son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, crucified under Pontius Pilate, risen on the third day. People don't believe that, but they believe a lot of the fruit of those beliefs and express them in creedal form and put them on things saying, we believe, as as if it's like a creed. So my question this evening is, how do we reach a world like that? Okay, because you live in it, so do I. So, John chapter one beginning at verse 35. John chapter 1, beginning at verse 35. Just a few verses. The next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, means teacher where are you staying he said to them come and you will see so they came and saw where he was staying and they stayed with him that day for it was about the 10th hour one of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew Simon Peter's brother he first found his own brother Simon and said to him we have found the Messiah which means Christ he brought him to Jesus Jesus looked at him and said you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Kephas, which means Peter. This is the word of God. In that little passage, there are four modes of evangelism. And they're just as important in the post-Christian world as they are in any other world, including the pre-Christian world that this is happening in. There is preaching. Somebody stands there and just proclaims loudly, Behold, the Lamb of God. There's a proclamation. There's a point. Look, that's Jesus. Look at him. The Lamb of God. The one we've all just been singing to. There's a couple of those songs I'd never heard before. I'm welling up as I'm singing them, just thinking, yes, that's true. Your blood still speaking this is amazing look at the lamb of god it's like a pre- that's what preaching preaching still works right i do a lot of i i preached in this room a couple of days ago somebody's come to church for the very first time invited by in this church for the very first time invited by a friend of his he might even be here tonight i don't know says this person's just come to faith in jesus just on sunday morning and, and not because of me just because people talking about jesus Often the Holy Spirit cuts through and make, brings life to the heart because, behold, the Lamb of God still works. So preaching still works. We're not going to talk about that tonight because a lot bunch of us aren't. That's not our primary ministry, but it still happens, right? And I, I think it's a. I'm a fan, right? Preaching. It'd be odd if I wasn't. The second thing that happens, asking. This is an evangelistic method and asking Jesus. Actually, Jesus' evangelistic method is very, very interesting with these guys. He looks around to them, and, he's, and they're following Jesus, but following him not as in disciples of his, just walking down the street behind him. And Jesus turns and sees them following, and he says, What are you seeking? What are you after? What do you want? That verb zeteo in, in John occurs a lot. You need to, what do you seek? What do you seek? What do you want? What's the thing in your heart that you really want? Let's find out what that is and have a conversation about it. It's asking. So you have preaching, you have asking. The third thing you have, Jesus' next evangelistic method, is hosting. As in, he has, says, Come around my house. That still works too. I don't think if I did a survey, how many of you came to faith, if you trust in the Lord Jesus, how many of you came to faith because you were around the house of someone who was a Christian, either in your family or maybe as a child I guess that would include that but also but you just hospitality someone had you round, and you chatted you there'll be a lot of us who that was a huge part of our story and that's what Jesus does they say rabbi where are you staying and he goes oh come with me so they come and stay overnight with Jesus their lives are everlastingly changed the the lives they will lead the reputations they will have for the rest of time the deaths they will die profoundly transformed by this moment Jesus says come round my house and stay in fact, it's not even his house, best we know, but it's the house he's staying in. It's like, oh, by the way, is it okay? Have we got these two guys around. I, th- I see a future in these two <laughs> jokers. Uh, fish, I know they smell a bit of fish, but I think they're going to have some impact on world history. And so let's bring them around. So there's preaching, asking, hosting, and then finally inviting. One of the two who heard John speak and follow Jesus was Andrew. Yay, this story is actually why I'm named Andrew. My parents liked this story. They thought, I want our son to be someone who brings people to see Jesus. I thought that's a nice way to reason, reason to name someone, isn't it? Um, so one of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, we found the Messiah. He's here. Come, come and see, so he, we, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. He said, hey, brother, you're not a follower yet. I think we found the Messiah. I'm going to invite you to come with me and meet Jesus. And that is a profoundly effective evangelistic strategy. And even in the post-Christian world, a friend of mine called Mike Graham has recently released a book called The Great Dechurching, in which is basically a huge survey of all the data on why people in your country have left the church in the last 20 years, and what it would take to get them back. And I thought I knew what was in it. I thought, well, people are disillusioned with this, that, and the other. I'm sure I know what the data says. And I was blown away when he did a little presentation on what they found. Showed all sorts of graphs, lots of data points. But the powerful conclusion for me was a, a huge percentage of the people who have left the church and have not come back either just before or just after COVID, millions and millions of people in your country would come back to church if someone invited them. It's an extraordinary data set because it just goes, here's all these, these reasons. This is why they left. They were disillusioned with that. They struggled with the leader. They had all this. They, had, they got out of the habit. All these different reasons. They started doing something else on Sundays. Could be very mundane or very big spiritual issues. But a huge percentage of them, it, when asked, what would encourage you to come back? What, what would make you come back? And they get tick and They said, actually, I think the thing that would make me come back is just someone probably invited me. I'd probably go. It was so interesting and so encouraging. I just thought, inviting people is still a thing. A lot of people say yes. It's surprising. A lot of people say oh, post-Christian culture can't invite people to church. I think, That's just nonsense. Lots of people. Some, but some of them will say no, but we've been surprised numerous times with people who we thought wouldn't come, and so we didn't invite them. Sometimes for years, and then said, eh, kind of, this is happening. Would you want to come? And they're like, actually, yes, I would. And off they go. I've had it. I've done door knocking. In Britain, which is not a particularly Christian place these days, and just knocking on doors, and a guy, you know, the woman arrives at the door, would you like to come to the Alpha Course? Eh, I'm not sure I would, but I think my son might. Miles, you want to come down? Comes down, and says, Oh, yeah, do you know, that's just what I'm looking for. I'd love to come. Last time I went to the church, years and years later, he was still there serving in a serving team. He got saved. And he's like, How does this happen? Sometimes just inviting people works. So, four different evangelistic strategies, and they're all valid. Preaching, asking hosting inviting all of them are vital for the post-christian world and all churches including this one will have people in it who are particularly good at all four you have some people in this church who are just great at evangelistic preaching you have some people who are just great at inviting people they would say I don't really want to be the preacher what I want to do is to invite people I often find they come others who you're just great at having people round to your home and when they do you often find yourself having not all the time but often you find conversations about matters of faith and sometimes people are led to the lord in your home sometimes people you just you're really really good at asking probing questions that open up spiritual conversations so what i want to do today is that they're all good but what i want to do just for a few minutes just to drill down on the second one the asking what are you seeking is jesus's first words in john's gospel and there's been a lot of build-up. If you know John's gospel, you know that the build-up is in the beginning was the Word. And the Word This is divine speech in human person, friends. Let's look. Here he comes, the Word, the Word, the Word. John's going, hey, the, Jesus is coming. I'm not worthy to, to tie up his sandals. Okay, can't wait to meet this guy, but where is he, John? Get to the point. And then he steps in, and the first thing he says is, what do you want? What are you looking for? What are you seeking? You, you, you're kind of hanging around. You're looking at me. like, What is it that you really want from life? And asking that question opens up a huge number of things. As as I say, in John's Gospel as a whole, this language of seeking becomes very significant. And so, if you just—it's just a really good question in a post-Christian world. What is? What do you? What do you actually really want? Um, a guy, an American pastor I know, might be known to some of you. I just thought it was great. He, he, he shared once in a round table the two evangelistic questions he often asks people. He was sitting next to, you know, the nightmare pastor who sits next to you on a plane and peppers you with gospel questions. Um, but he says, The two questions I often ask are firstly, what are you living for? It's quite a deep question. And then he says, How's that working out for you? What are you living for? How's that working out for you? In, in many ways, that's Jesus saying, What are you seeking? What is it you really want underneath it all? So let's go back to the post-Christian story for a moment. Could you go back to the the one with the yard sign on the right and the picture on the left with the the guy with the hat? Is that a guy or a woman? It's kind of neither. I don't know what it is. But anyway, um, so look at it. What is the person who believes this story, I sketched a few moments ago. What do they believe and what do they want Right? You could have a look at that and tell that story. Right? You, you, what you need to do is what makes you happy. Look into your inner identity, but freedom. What's good about that? What, do you, what is that person seeking? So you can ask them questions about it and say, so what's good about the story they're telling? What perhaps needs challenging about the story they're telling? What's true about it? What's beautiful about it? The answer is actually quite a lot. There's quite a lot in, that, in the narrative I sketched just now, which is really good. And then there's some things where you'd say, well, it's kind of true but it's exaggerated in its significance. So I might say there, for instance, the power of the inner identity is exaggerated. That I, I, I would say, yes, What you, you want to do what makes you happy. I'd say, I think that's entirely true, biblically, that people are motivated by their own joy and that delighting is a good thing. You have to find it in God, though, because if you don't, it actually eats you up in the end. But what I don't believe is that you can find that from your identity inside here without reference to God. I don't think that's true. So there's some stuff that's good, some stuff that's not so good. Is justice important in the public square? Yes. Is progress happening? Well, in some ways, yes. In other ways, maybe no. So you, you look at through and say, but what is this person? What are you seeking? You stereotypically post-Christian person. What are you after? What do you want in life? And then as you can, st- you can ask that, given what you want... How's that working out for you? Are, is it working? Is it coming from the things that you're looking for? And are there perhaps things that you are seeking that you have yet to find? Are there things that Christianity actually provides that the thing you currently believe or give your life to does not? Then so we put up the wheel, um, which is a couple of pages on, that big sort of multicolored wheel. This is, again, I pinched this from... Uh, the guys at Redeemer New York. It's just a a great wheel that just goes around. But these are the things, what Christianity offers, these are things that people in our culture are always asking for and wanting. They want top, top, top center in red. They want meaning. They want a meaning in life that can face any suffering. They don't want a meaning that suffering takes away. Meaning when your career is going well, you're making lots of money, you're in a great relationship. That's easy. It's cheap, actually. But what people want, what do what you really want, is I want a meaning that even when hard times come, which they will, this meaning stands. Christianity offers you that. Because it, offers, it puts you in a story that isn't unraveled by any tough things that come to you. In fact, as we've already talked about and sung about this evening, it often strengthens the power of that story when you're living through suffering. People want freedom. They want a freedom, but it's fascinating. What they want is a freedom that doesn't erode... Community And there's a problem there. Because for you to be completely free means you can't live in community. And for you to be completely in community means you can't be free. Because there are obligations to being in any community that involve you sacrificing some freedoms for the whole. So modern people find themselves in a funk because they want to be free and in community at the same time. The only way you can do it is if you understand freedom in the Christian sense—not only of being free to do whatever you want, but free to have to be liberated from some of your desires by a God who loves you and wants not only to set you free from, you know, physical constraints, but from the spiritual ones that cause you to be a slave to sin. So that's what—that's what Jesus says, isn't it? The Pharisees are going, oh, the Judeans rather are going, oh, we're not slaves to anybody," and Jesus says, "Oh, yes, you are. You sin. That makes you a slave to sin." But if the sun sets you free, you'll be free indeed. So there's a desire for freedom that doesn't conflict with or erode true love and community. People want happiness, they want satisfaction and contentment that's not based on changing circumstances. Everyone in this world wants happiness. What they aren't sure is how do you get that in such a way that it doesn't get lost when circumstances take a turn for the worse, whether it be a personal crisis, a bereavement, a a broken relationship, a stock market crash, a a loss of job. How How do you find happiness in that situation? People want explanation they want a way to make sense of who you are what human nature is and how human history works Christianity well that's what the Bible is it's not it's not it's the only thing it is but the Bible is a massive story that has an explanatory power about the way the world is that in my mind does, is not rivaled even closely by any other explanation offered people want beauty they want an enhancement of the fleeting senses of beauty spirituality or fullness I like the word fullness in evangelism depends on the person, but I think something, because it's a bit of a floaty word, no one's quite sure what it is, but they kind of know that it's not where they live most of the time. You know, have you had moments where you touched a, almost like another level? Spirituality, transcendence awe has descended on you. Have you ever had that? And people often say, I have, but that's not most of my life. I've had moments where, and sometimes those moments lead people to conversion, because they're so astonished by it. You might, a friend of ours, he just had held his firstborn child, and was like, this just, it just the thing I believe my whole life just doesn't account for this feeling, something has happened the, the, something from another world has broken into my life and I don't think I'll ever be the same again and he's like I know scientifically I can explain how it happened, I was there but I, but I still don't think, but this is not reducible to an atomic experience there's fullness, there's a beauty, there's a mystery to this and he actually became a believer in fact he did our marriage prep um, years ago Hope, a practical hope for the world in the face of evil and death. I want to believe that things will be better. And actually the narrative of progress, progress, progress doesn't work when it collides with simply the brute facts of history. The 19th century was people pretty big on hope. And then the 20th century happened and they were a little bit certain. And that's what happens in history. It has ups and it has downs and some things grow. Technology generally goes forward. But other things don't, morality for instance, does not it goes up and down depending on all sorts of factors and so people want to hope that the world will one day be better than it is now but they want that hope to be grounded in reality not in wishful thinking justice people want justice that doesn't create new oppressors and that's harder than it sounds because actually for you to rectify this problem often create i mean this is the the genius of a book like animal farm which you yeah, okay, good. I know, you know, talking pigs, all that jazz. I didn't know if it had made it over here. I assumed it probably had. Um, but, um, and set, by the way, about two miles from my house in Eastbourne. So, little fact for you there. Uh, all great things, including Matt Redman, Becky Cox, Andrew and Rachel Wilson, all come from Sussex, just saying. Um, some of you never even heard of Sussex. So, um, but Animal Farm is a great story about exactly that phenomenon. It, it describes what happens when, you know, in the name of bringing justice, you just create a new load of oppressors. It's it's a satire, in some ways, on communism, but it's actually a satire on the way that human beings, in trying to redress grievance A, unintentionally create grievance B, just with different people on the receiving end. And that's not just communists that do that, capitalists do it, everyone does it. And what people want is a justice that doesn't just create a new class of oppressors. People want justification. They want a solution to shame and guilt that neither dismisses it nor treats it as indelible. They don't want to get, just say, no one needs to worry about anything bad they've done because that leads to injustice writ large. But nor do they want people to live like they do on Twitter, which is endless awareness of sin and no means of redemption. What they want is a means of getting right and getting free from shame and guilt without it minimizing the significance of the sin, but without it making you live in the consequences and darkness of it forever people want that now Christianity that's at the heart of what Christianity offers most people want that in some form they want wholeness they want a goodness of the physical world and the ability to love your body they want reconciliation a basis for forgiveness that honors justice and mercy they want in an area for instance like racial relations they want to take the sin and evil seriously and make sure it's spoken about clearly and dealt with and they also want mercy to be extended so that peoples ultimately don't have to continue living in the enmity but are be able to come together in peace that's what people want and they say well in this system you have that but not that and this other system you, have, you do get that but you don't have that and in Christianity you have at the heart of it he has made one new man out of the two thus making peace they want love they want a way to flourish in community and romantic relationships that are not exploitative or commodified, as Keller's phrase for this, uh, like Tim Keller who died last week. It's just a very good way of describing what people mean when they say I want love. They don't just mean I want an ima- a, a sudden rush of emotion towards another human. They mean I want to be grounded in something that actually doesn't create exploitative relationships and nevertheless is meaningful and life-giving to me. And they want identity. They want an identity that doesn't crush you or exclude others. And most modern identities either create a problem for you or, when you perform them and live them out into the world, make someone else the bogeyman. So if you're a very progressive person, your identity is based on the fact that you are this kind of person, unlike those bigoted, oh, fish, rednecks over there. And if you're a conservative person, it means you are a very good person, unlike those I don't know what language you would use, but sort of, well, people like me, I guess, from Britain. I don't know. But those guys, they're they're all sort of marginalized. And actually, that's what happens, is the way you express identity always creates another person as the person who gets squashed. Because that's how we do it. We go, well, for me to go up means someone else goes down. It's what teenagers do. It's what we all do. And human beings want all of those things, and Christianity offers them all in spades. And what we do is we ask the question, what are you seeking? What do you want? And people say, they tell you the story, and you think, yeah, okay. You want, actually, in many ways, all of those things. There's other things you might want, too. But you, you start by finding out, what is it. You, what are you seeking? And that question opens up a whole load of possibilities in terms of reaching people. Now, just go to the yard sign a moment. Should we just go back to that one? What are people in the, the, you know, the yard sign, the, the, the creed, kind of, that one? In that sort of expression, so we're now on the right-hand side of the screen, what are people looking for? What do they want? What, you, what are you seeking when you're declaring that and saying it? I think what I was, what's often happening there is people saying these beliefs, as I said earlier, I think are in and of themselves. Once again, caveat, policy implications, leave that for now. But the statements as they come kind of obviously true. But what I don't have, if I'm a, an unbeliever, someone who, or I won't use that word, a non-Christian, What I don't have necessarily is a a foundation for all those things being true. I'm asserting them, but actually the only reason I can do that and assume you'll agree with me is because we live in a culture that's been so shaped by these kind of values, going right back to Jesus's death on the cross. So I can assert them now and I'm expecting you to agree with me because you're in that culture and we all affirm it in some form. But what I don't have is actually a, a philosophical or scientific basis for any of them because none of those truths are found in nature. In nature, the strong eat the weak, and the weak, I'm afraid, is hard cheese. It's a lovely little video. I just going to be playing the YouTube clip. This is a, a friend of mine. Again, another great person from Eastbourne, from Sussex. This is wonderful. This is like an advert for Sussex. Uh, if you ever come to Britain, we'd love to see you in Sussex. Lovely rolling hills and see. But anyway, this is um, my friend, Glenn Scriven, who lives around the corner from me. It's a wonderful little two and a half minute video on how what people in the, the yard sign vision the secular creed, whatever. What they, what, they actually, what they want is a ground for those beliefs. The beliefs are right, but they aren't sure why. Ultimately, because they're not found in nature, you can't do an experiment to prove any of those things. Except, as I say, love is love, but you know what I mean. So they, underneath all of that, like, how do I know this is true? Where's the ground for it? Let's just play the video if we can.
1: This is Sally. Sally is a rational person who could never make a leap of faith like Robbie up there. Look at Robbie, he's a faith head, floating around unsupported by anything. No, Sally simply goes by the evidence and the assured findings of science and reason. I mean, obviously Sally believes that all people are equal, that's just normal. And that society must protect its weakest members, obviously. She is certain that consent is essential to sex, and that education, not coercion, is the path to enlightenment. She trusts science and what it can deliver the world, she is certain that all people should be free, and she's concerned to reform the evils of yesterday as we progress to a brighter tomorrow. Oh, hey Robbie, what are you doing down... here? That's right. Sally is a believer. Because none of these morals, assumptions, or deep intuitions are the result of logic or scientific experiments. You can't prove equality, compassion, consent, or any of these values that we live by every day. We believe in these values, we stake our lives on them. But they're not the kinds of things you can deduce logically or demonstrate scientifically. It turns out that Sally is a believer. She doesn't need to make a leap of faith, she's already living at a great height. Day by day, minute by minute, she assumes any number of values that cannot be proven with mathematical certainty. The solid ground she thinks she's standing on is not the ground of simple logic or reason. Actually, the values she lives by are founded on something else, something she might not have considered. And without that foundation, the values she lives by don't really make sense. You see, Sally lives her life based on the values of the Jesus revolution. She doesn't know that's where her values have come from. She's never been to church, she's never read the Bible for herself, but she's grown up in a culture built by Jesus and the values he has injected into the world. Sally has been assuming some deeply Christian truths all along, even if she never really examined them. But if she takes the time to look where she's standing, She might just find that she's more of a person of faith than she thought. Sally's challenge is not to take a leap of faith. Through the Jesus revolution, history has already taken an almighty leap. Sally, along with the rest of us, are already in midair. What she needs is some ground beneath her feet. And it's Jesus alone who can provide it.
0: Amen? I love that video. I just think that's really cool. It's really clever. Animated videos make things sound more true than people saying them out loud. I don't know why that, why that is. But what I like about it is, is ask, effectively saying, what do, you, what do you want? What do you believe? What do you want? And is there a ground for it? You've got all of these things. They're actually right. It's much easier to say to somebody, here's the things you believe, and here's why you're right, than to say, here's the things you believe, and here's why you're wrong. And actually, you still have to say that to people. We just have to say it to each other in the church, don't we? That, that thing, not okay. That thing was wrong. That, okay, I was wrong. We have to do that. But at the heart of what you're presenting to somebody is these are the things you're looking for, these are the things you believe, and this is why you're right, even if you haven't quite realized that's why. And this is what Jesus effectively provides. It starts with the question, what are you seeking? What do you want? You want ground under your feet? You want meaning, identity, love, justice, justification? What is it that you want? Because the chances are that when you boil it down to its essence, Jesus wants to give you that thing. He might not give it to you in anything like the way you thought you would get it. Your, your view of how you might find identity or freedom might be very different from what he means. But actually the heart thing that's in you going, I want that is ultimately God has set eternity in the hearts of men and women. That there is a craving for God and what he gives. And that there is a way of making that, as we, in making that case as we interact with people and talk about it now there are other things that people ultimately want but they don't know they want and, when, and I'm not talking about that tonight that there are significant things like I would I'd say grace is a deep profound thing that everybody actually wants but doesn't realize they do because they don't know what it is and it's only when you experience it they go oh that's, that's what I needed I needed somebody to, to substitute for me and take away all the bad things and transform me and reinforce all the good things and make them better that's what I needed I didn't know that that was a thing And people want freedom, people want truth, they want many, many other things as well. But ultimately, when Jesus turns to you or to an unbeliever or anybody and says, what are you seeking, what are you looking for? People give the response, I I was really hoping for this. And the answer to that thing they were looking for is found in Jesus. And actually, Peter says, and no one else, because there's no other name under heaven given to men by which we may be saved. Serve a gracious God, He's very good, and actually, as we get to, I, I get the joy of doing all of those things, I guess. I have some people around, I preach a lot, I get to ask lots of questions, I get to invite people to things. But I like asking questions, I like that question, Who do you seek? But I want to do it alongside saying what John the Baptist said before, which is, Behold the Lamb of God. So ultimately although people what they say they want is all of those things on the wheel and all of those different values what actually the human being will only be satisfied by is jesus so behold the lamb of god when you see him the other things you thought you needed fade into lower significance you might still need them and you will actually still get them even if in a different way than you expected but what you really what your soul craves one thing i've asked of the lord that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord and gaze on his beauty. That's what my heart is made for. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. What are you seeking? What are you after? It can be a helpful question, but actually what we all need underneath it is the Lord Jesus. Let's pray, shall we?